I feel like it's also the community that I come from. There's there's a lot of, you know, look good, achieve maybe, depending on who you are. If you're, I hate to say this, but in my family, there was a lot of get married, have babies. Um, that's That's achieving, you know, fit into the role that you're supposed to fit in. And so there was not a lot of talking about real feelings. You're listening to the MILF Podcast. This is the show where we talk about motherhood and sexuality with amazing women with fascinating stories to share on the joys of being a MILF. Now here's your host, the milfiest MILF I know, Jennifer Tracy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Jennifer Tracy, your host. This is MILF Podcast. Today on the show, we have Nancy Katz. We had a really fun time when she came to the studio and we really went deep with this interview. And I was just absolutely floored at how honest and vulnerable Nancy got with me. Um, and, and I've known Nancy for a long time because we've known each other since our babies were three months old. Our babies, they're nine now, but Nancy is a writer. She's written for ABC. She was the recipient of the Meryl Streep Writers Lab. She was invited to be a part of the Meryl Streep Writers Lab, which is a very elite writers lab. She's also got three projects in the works, uh, feature films. She's just got an amazing amount of resilience. And so I'm excited for you to get to hear her story. If you want to find Nancy, you can find her on Twitter. Her handle is at Nancy, that's N-A-N-C-I, Cat Girl, K-A-T-G-I-R-L, Nancy Cat Girl on Twitter, if you want to find her and keep up with her. Um, I really hope you enjoy the show today. Thanks for listening, guys. Nancy, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really happy to be here. (laughs) Nancy and I were in the trenches together because we met when our kids were five or six months old. In Our baby class? Three months old, I think. Maybe it was. Oh yeah. Yeah. They yeah. were tiny, tiny, tiny. baby class, rye class here in LA for three years. We did the class. We extended it yes. the next year. Yeah. And we would just like call each other and look at each other like, how the fuck are you doing this? Because I'm not doing it. I know. <laughs> I, used to, I have to say, I used to call that class um, baby meditation <laughs> because, because the person who ran it, they, she kept saying like, you know, don't interfere. And yes. it was like the only time I could sit back yes. and feel like I wasn't being lazy yes. by not doing something. Yes. Like I was I was doing something by not doing something. Because you were being told <laughs> yes, not to do exactly. something. Oh my God. Instead of thinking times. of all the things I was supposed to be doing and not doing. Or wishing I could be doing instead. Yes. So just before we started recording, you were talking about, we, we were talking about postpartum. Yeah. And you had mentioned that you didn't know that you had postpartum. Can you can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. When I always thought of postpartum, I thought of postpartum depression. And I didn't link um, anxiety with depression. And I had so much anxiety about mm. what would happen with my son, with Benjamin. Um, is it okay to say his name? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Course. Yeah. I, um, I didn't think he was going to make it to his first birthday. Mm. I just was convinced that I would not be capable of keeping him alive. There were some reasons. I mean, he was a preemie. Um, I didn't make any breast milk. I couldn't breastfeed him. Um, but it was not so much that as I thought he's too fragile mm. and uh, and I'm not good enough. Mm. I hate to say that, but that was how I felt. Oh, it's I, so common. Yeah. It's just the, yeah, my previous guest this morning, we were just talking about how we both had felt so deficient. Yeah. So I, I just had tremendous anxiety and it wasn't till, um, somebody gave my husband this book about postpartum depression and he gave it to me and it talked about how anxiety is a form of depression. I didn't know this. I still didn't really do a lot about it except understand that there was something that was happening and try to get sleep, which was something I had a re- I had real trouble with. Because the anxiety would keep anxiety, you awake. Anxiety. I'd, yeah. I'd wake up at the slightest sound that he made, I would be up. And then I couldn't fall back to sleep. And unfortunately, oh, it's so awful. But you know some of my history. I'll mention some of it here. But um, my father had Lou Gehrig's disease. He had it from the time I was about 13, uh, 12 really. And he had it for 22 years, which is kind of shocking. He didn't have any kind of special form of Lou Gehrig's disease, but he'd gone on a respirator at the two-year mark. 
And because of really good care and because he went on a respirator and he had a feeding tube, he was able to last another 20 years. Mm. But I spent, that was, I was 12 years old. I spent most of my, you know, older childhood, teenhood, young adulthood picturing the moment that I would find out that he was dead. And I, I guess it gave me some sense of control. I would imagine I'd, I'd be a counselor, you know, like at CIT at sleepaway camp. And I would think, oh, if the call comes now, mm. this is what it's going to look like. This is what I'm going to say. This is what's going to happen. I would tear up about it. And then it would, I felt like a release mm-hmm. and I would feel better and I'd kind of let it go. And I would do this somewhat regularly. And I found myself doing this with my son. Mm. But with my son, it, there was no release. It was just apps. It was just trauma. It was just imagining what would happen if I got up and I came to the crib and he wasn't and he wasn't breathing. Mm. Um, imagine what would happen if I turned away from the bathtub and he'd gone under. And Ima- I like just imagined every little thing. Imagine, you know, rear facing seat in the back of the car. Like, I don't know that he's still alive while I'm driving. I'd have to pull over and look in the back. It's crazy. But also super common. But yeah. super common. Yeah. And I, But when you're in it though, yeah. you don't know that it's common. Or yeah. I, I'll speak for myself. I didn't know that those things were common. I wasn't having those exact thoughts that you were saying, but similar. And again, I would just put it off on, well, I'm crazy or I'm deficient. Yes. If I were just a better mother, I would relax knowing that I was taking good enough care of my son. Yeah. And you know what? I find that most you don't hear people talk about this. No. You really don't. You don't hear, you don't see it on TV. You don't really see it in the movies. I even right now it's starting to come out a little bit yeah, more. I've I've watched things where, you know, people feel that, you know, everyone else is doing a great job and they're not. But I'm not, I still don't see a lot of like the terror of of being a parent. Yeah. It's your most vulnerable. It's the most vulnerable you could possibly be. Yes. You know, somebody described it to me as your heart being ripped out of your body and walking around on its own. Yes. And there's nothing you can really do to, pre- I mean, there's a little you can do to protect that heart, but there's only so much. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Like, how long did this go on before you either just naturally got to relief or did you seek out relief? Did you get help? I sought help. I had a therapist that I was seeing and it's interesting because I was scared that I had postpartum, but I didn't want to say it. Like I felt like, um, because what would happen if you said it? I felt too broken Mm. and which is crazy because I, I was already so broken. Like, (laughs) (laughs) tell me what you mean by that. You were already so broken. I, you know, I mean, I was so broken as in I was sleep deprived. Mm. I was exhausted. I was isolated in a really strange way. I feel like as new parent, you're right. I should just speak for myself as a new mom. I didn't know what other moms were going through. Mm. And especially the very beginning, it's hard to know what other parents are going through because those first three to six months, it's like you're you're, in a cave. You're in a cave. There's where are you going? Like, who yeah. are you talking to? Who are you going yeah. out with? Like, nobody and nothing. Yeah. And for me, too, and during that time, when my son would sleep, I didn't want to talk to anyone. Oh, of course. I didn't want to call anyone and then talk about it. It was like, I just want quiet, or I just want to fold laundry, or I yeah. just want to binge watch. Exactly. You know, I want to take my brain and plug it into the TV and be yes. in somebody else's world for yes. a while. Yes, yes, Yeah. So you, you went to get help. So I went to get help and you, you were asking, you, well, you know, you were asking about being broken. Yeah. Like, it's hard to know. I remember like when, when Benjamin was, excuse me, a few months older than that, he was maybe eight months. I was in the playground and I was talking to another mom and she said, it's just so isolating. Mm. And I remember that moment where I was like, oh my God, yes, that's what it is. It's isolating. But the fact that I needed to be around another person and hear them say it yes. and to think about the, all the months that you're alone Ugh. and you're not getting that feedback and yes. you're also not sometimes putting voice to things that you might not have put your finger on yet. Mm. Yes. And you don't have that. And so that moment where she said it's isolating and I had suddenly this confirmation and somebody 
somebody kind of somebody putting into words some of what I was feeling. And it's weird to think that it's isolating too, because like you said, I don't really want to be around people. Like I want to go to sleep. I want want a moment where, you know, somebody's life doesn't depend on me. It's so much pressure. Yeah. You know, and it's boring. Yeah. (laughs) It's really boring. It really is. For years it's boring and it slowly gets less boring. Like, like, like first, you know, you know, you have your, your baby and they're on their back and you just are sitting there and that's it. You're, I mean, they're beautiful and they're wonderful, but you're not supposed to be doing other things. No. And you're just laying on the floor. That's all you're doing. And then eventually they discover stairs. And then it's like up the stairs and down the stairs and up the stairs and down the stairs. And for them, this is magical. And the first 30 times, for me, it's magical too. Time 150, you're thinking, there are parts of my brain that are dying. Yeah. You know, and then like the first time, you know, they, you know, are stringing words together. It's incredible. It's this incredible, incredible thing. Yeah. And then they start like just babbling at you like 24-7 and you're going, just a little break, (laughs) you know, just a, just a little quiet game. Yeah. Just let's play the quiet game. Let's play the quiet game. And then like the first joke my son told me, I was ecstatic. Oh my God, the first joke. Yeah. And now mommy, mommy, this is so funny. And it's like, it's usually not that fun. (laughs) You might listen to this. It's great for another eight-year-old. Yes. You know, it's really great for another eight-year-old. Fart Um, fart jokes and penis jokes only take you so far. They will only take you so far. So yeah. And it is, you know, it's one of those things where you you start having play dates, which is great. And you start getting to talk to the other parents, which is great. And starts bringing me back. It started to bring me back into myself. But even then, you know, like then the kids want your attention. And I would always say, I was like, Benjamin, you get your play date. I get my play date. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it was slow. And the therapist I met with at the time, I, it was, I was afraid to be labeled something. I was Mm. afraid that if it was postpartum depression, it meant maybe it wasn't temporary that it was a chemical imbalance and not something that would go away when I didn't have to worry about SIDS anymore. Mm. So I every as I spoke to her, I would frame it that way. I would say, if only, you know, if only I could have a little more time to myself, mm. which is true in some senses, mm. you know, but it doesn't take away the fear. Right. You know, if only, I mean, we're, even just now, we were just talking about this. My husband is taking my son and my younger stepdaughter camping. And it is the first time in about nine years that I am going to be in the house by myself for two nights straight. I've been out of town, you know, by myself in a hotel room and that sort of thing. But I haven't been in my house alone with no one around like except for like school hours right. or you know that but sort like of thing. But like overnight. But like overnight yeah. and like two nights, which yeah. is insane. Yeah. Like there's one whole day in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um and I've been looking forward to this moment for a really long time. For 9 years. And yeah. For 9 years. <laughs> and I uh haven't been able to sleep for 4 nights mm. because I am terrified mm. that they will not come back in one piece. Mm. And every, I would wake up and I would think about if you go hiking, you have to watch out for rattlesnakes and maybe I should go. And I kept going back and forth. It's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah. Even now. What was your mom like growing up? Was she? She was um, a nervous, (laughs) anxious person. Mm. And when your dad was diagnosed and you were dealing with, your whole family was dealing around. His disease and the treatment of it. Yeah. What was she like then? She was- Did it get worse? It did get worse. Um, it was hard for her to be emotionally present. You know, this is her, but it's also, I feel like it's also the community that I come from. There's, there's a lot of 
you know, look good, achieve maybe, uh, depending on who you are. If you're, I hate to say this, but in my family, there was a lot of get married, have babies. Um, that's, that's achieving, mm. you know, fit into the role that you're supposed to fit in. Mm. And so there was not a lot of talking about real feelings. And with my mother, she's very uncomfortable with other people's emotions if they are not happiness or gratitude. So when I was in high school, I wasn't actually living with my parents for most of the time. My dad needed to be in a warm place. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. With Lou Gehrig's disease, the muscle deteriorates just because it can't be used. And that's like your little boiler system in your body. That's your heating system. Mm. And so staying in New York over the winters was too much for him. So they moved out to Arizona um, from around like September, October to like May, April, May. So I lived, you know, my sister and I were together. I lived with a friend's family. Then we had uh, someone from France who came and lived with me and my brother for a while. He's older. And um, if I called my mom and I wasn't saying the things she wanted me to hear, she would say, I can't talk. And she would get off the phone or I have to go. So if it was, how was your day? And if the day was not good, she would get off the phone. And I think what's always been hard for me, and it kind of ties in a little bit with all this is I became very disconnected from my own emotions. Mm. I didn't have a really good handle on what I was feeling at any one time. Mm. Well, you weren't allowed to. I wasn't allowed to. Yeah. And, and if I was angry, I would get upset with myself for being angry mm. and I would try to not be angry which is a kind of a weird loop. If I was sad, I would feel more broken for being sad rather than just accepting the fact that I was sad. Right. So that's precisely why you didn't want to have the label of being depressed, being, uh, yeah, being like exactly. a diagnosis. Exactly. Yeah. I mm -hmm. still have so much trouble with it. Yeah. I feel like, I would feel like for me, sadness was a personality flaw. Mm. And not for other people. I did not judge other people this way. Right. I just judged myself this way. Right. So, yeah. Well, because just knowing you as well as I do, I'm just thinking about your son and that, of course, if your son came to you and said, I'm sad and I'm having these things, you would immediately validate that for him and get him whatever help he needed. And it wouldn't matter what, you know. Yeah. And um, I'm really deliberate about that mm. because I don't, I'm going to make other mistakes. I'm going to make, I already have, and I will make so many mistakes, but I at least don't have to make the same ones that I've already become aware of in my own life. Right. And I'm sure there are many that I'm not aware of, but I don't have to make the ones that I've already tried to fix mm. for myself. You go to therapy, you get some relief. I get, I, I don't get a ton of relief. I have okay. to admit this. Yeah. Um, she then sent me on to a psychiatrist and he put me on an anti-anxiety, a, a very low dose anti-anxiety for sleep mm -hmm. and not nightly. Okay. Um, and then he also put me on a, like a medical grade, uh, what's the stuff that you, that's an herbal supplement for sleep? Melatonin. Oh, okay. Yeah. Melatonin, um, which actually helped. Okay. Um, and has no side effects. And that was really nice. That's so I got a little extra sleep and I have to say I, I, I muscled through it. Mm -hmm. It was a mm -hmm. lot of muscling through it. Um, I believe in therapy. I always, I'm trying to get the kids to go to therapy, mm. but it, it's only helped me in a very limited way. When did you truly start to feel relief from, from those feelings? Cause you oh. don't feel that way now. I mean, other than <laughs> you don't feel that way as intensely or no. as often now, I don't even feel though like that the way. camping. Yeah. Obviously. But. Yeah. Things will come up that will bring it up sure. like this, but I don't feel it as on the daily. I don't feel it right. on the daily. The two year mark meant that he was not as much of a candidate for SIDS anymore. Mm. Um, so I felt better after the two years passed. Having him go to school was helpful to me. For yeah. three hours. <laughs> well, I always make that it's, joke. What's interesting, yeah, the first two years we were at a different preschool. And for those two years, he was in the he was there from eight or nine to three. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I I still was kind of getting my act together. I man, was I hit hard by having a kid. Obviously, it was my choice and I'm I would wouldn't change it for anything. I'm just going to talk about 
program for a little bit. Yeah. I'll just go there. Yeah, I'll just go, go there. We Do talked it. about it a little bit. We're going deep today. We're going deep today. So um, um, I had an eating disorder from when I was about 12, which is when my dad got sick. I don't know whether I would have had it if he had gotten not gotten sick. Well, it's something that we would never know. Possibly it would have happened anyway. Sure. You know, for me, it was really, it's a binge disorder and restricting. Mm. Um, and I would go back and forth. Um, I didn't know it was an eating disorder because I didn't throw up. I was not anorexic either. So I just assumed I didn't, I something's just wrong with me. I don't know. I want to be the weight I want to be. Why won't I let myself do that? Mm. Why do I keep going down to the kitchen and sneaking half a bagel and then going upstairs to my room and then sneaking down to the kitchen for half a bagel and then sneaking upstairs and then, you know, stuff like that. Sure. And then being on my own, you know, once I was in my 20s, eating my way through the kitchen. Eventually, I was talking to someone about my weight and I don't know what I said because it was, for me, it's very shameful. It's always mm. had been a very shameful thing. I was mm. really embarrassed about it. And my family was also very involved with how I looked and what I weighed. This was a right. really big deal for them that I weigh a certain amount. Well, sure. It fits in with what yeah. you were saying about playing the role and achieving the thing. And yeah. If you're going to get married and have kids, you have to look a certain way. You have way. to look a certain yeah. way. Who's going to want you if you are 10 pounds overweight? 10 pounds. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So I, I know I wasn't saying I have a problem with food to somebody, but I was probably saying like, oh, I, sh- I should have exercised more, this or that or the other. And she said, she talked about how there are programs for this. I joined one of those programs. This was, oh God, um, how many years ago? 13, no, 14 or 15 years ago. For me, it was more helpful than therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, you mean as a 12-step program? Yes. Mm-hmm. For me, it was more helpful because when I go to therapy, I am. it's my narrative. And I get to craft that narrative. Mm. So the therapist is only going to hear what I have to say. Sure. Whether I want to downplay something. I couldn't stop eating. And I went to one particular therapist for two or three years, but I was so ashamed of the fact that I couldn't stop eating that I didn't tell him sure. that that was why I was in therapy. Right. And that was the only reason I was in therapy. Right. And I finally revealed it to him like two and a half years in. And then at that point, he kind of said, well, the next time you want to eat, why don't you take a walk? Which I will tell you is like saying to an alcoholic, the next time (laughs) you'd like to have a drink, why don't you walk around the block? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not an idiot. (laughs) Like, if if that were possible, I would have done it. Why wouldn't I have thought of that? But I've thought of that. I promise I've thought of that. I've thought of a lot of things um, that Someone didn't work. Someone said to me recently, having an addiction is like trying to catch a greased pig. <laughs> <laughs> such a great image because it's true. It's like if it was that easy. Oh, my God. Yeah. If, that e- if it was yeah. that easy, we'd all be doing it. If it's so easy, you step in that pig pen and yes, catch that greased exactly. pig. So, yeah, I eventually uh, realized I wasn't going to get the help that I needed through him. And but I, but again, I didn't even know that for the first, I think it was two and a half years because, because I, w- I refused to talk about it. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, I started a program and for me, it was really mind blowing. I discovered so much about myself. I found out that I'm a huge people pleaser. Mm. I just want everyone to be happy. Mm. And that's why people, I love people and I'm really social and I love my friends. Mm. But I would need these long breaks from them because I just assumed nobody would like me the way that I was. And so I was always trying to figure out what somebody wanted me to say so I could say it. Which is exhausting. It's exhausting. (laughs) It's just just exhausting, you know? Um, I realized that meant I'm a liar. I, you know, how are you? I'm great. You know, I lie all the time Mm. and it would be seemingly for the benefit of somebody else. Mm -hmm. I was always, quote unquote, taking care of other people. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, I was 
worried that that person might get upset with me if I said no to what they wanted to do. So I would say yes, which I know it fits in with people pleasing. But what I mean is I'm controlling the other person's um, rather than just being honest and saying they are a grown up, they right. can take care of themselves. Right. They can handle their emotion if that's what happens. Even though they probably can't. <laughs> but, but yes, that's the and healthy viewpoint. if they viewpoint. can't, right. I don't need to enable right, them. Exactly. They can figure that out on their own. <laughs> There's 12-step programs for that too. Yes, the there just, are. Just, yeah. <laughs> um, so I realized all these things and I also realized that I had this running commentary in my brain about how stupid I was and how, how mm. like I'd, I'd have a conversation, I'd walk away and I'd berate myself about mm. something. And that was something I just had to put a stop to. I just had to, I, I'd hear it and I'd go, stop, just stop. And the, the leap of faith for me at the time was I'm going to have to accept myself for who I am with all my flaws because I will never be that perfect person. It doesn't exist. And I do, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit about parenting because mm -hmm. this is, I, I'll just jump in right here and say, mm -hmm. One thing that really helped me tremendously was, you know, my, uh, my husband and I have done some couple, couples counseling through the years. And I actually love couples counseling. Mm. And I find it so much more helpful than regular counseling. I, I, for me, it's like active therapy yeah. Yeah, yeah. because somebody is there to go, that's not how it happened. Right, 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 <laughs> right. So we would do couples counseling at different times. And I was talking about parenting to this therapist, this couples counselor. And she said, there is no such thing as a perfect parent. And the reason there's no such thing as a perfect parent is because if you do everything perfectly, then you can't tear at the relationship. And if you can't break or tear the relationship, then you can't mend the relationship. Mm. And the relationship only gets better if it's torn apart and mended and the child can see things will be okay if if they break and we put them back together. Yes. And so there's no real relationship if you don't do that. Mm. There's no such thing as perfect. Mm. And that took a lot off my chest. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that made me feel a lot better. But at the time, and this was before I met my husband, and luckily I met my husband when I was in a healthy place, thank God. But at the time, I was realizing I have to accept myself for who I am, um, for whatever place I am in in life, for how I look, for the things that I say, even if they're not the smartest things, even if they don't engage everyone, even if I walk away going, oh, wait, that wasn't what I meant to say. I have to accept myself for who I am. And so I, my friends will have to accept me for who I am. And if they don't accept me for who I am, then I have to let them go. Mm. And that was terrifying to me. That was like jumping off a cliff. Mm. I hate disappointing people. I did that. I didn't lose any friends. My friendships got stronger. They got easier. I was able to hang out with people for so much longer. I didn't need the breaks because I wasn't exhausting myself by trying to emotionally jump through hoops, trying to figure out what people wanted and reading their face and reading what they, you know, trying to read behind everything they said. So exhausting. And then I met my husband. And, you know, the thing I really wanted, like my, you know, like my theme at that point was honesty. It was about me trying to stay honest as often as possible. And that meant checking in with myself, being present. Like when I'm in a conversation with someone, stop in, internally stopping myself and saying, are you listening? Mm. Are you trying to think about the next person, that th the next thing that this person is going to say mm. or the next thing? you want to say to impress them. Mm. Paying attention if something bumps for me suddenly and and really hearing it. Um, I remember you know, my dad died shortly after I was in program and that was a really intense time. It was also wonderful. Mm. And it was wonderful. And I feel like I'm not allowed to say that. Why? Because somebody dies and you say it's wonderful. He was a great guy, obviously, and I loved him. But it, I finally felt released mm. from 22 years of waiting. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, I felt like, I, I felt like I didn't know I'd been holding my breath 
for over two decades. Yeah. And that's not on him and that's not on the disease. That's on me, 100% on me. And also he couldn't move or speak for 20 years, mm. you know, which that's not, I mean, it was his choice to keep moving forward and he would get sick and he would go into the hospital. And I remember at times when I would be there and I would say, do you want to keep going? And he could communicate through raising his eyebrows. Um, he would say yes. And so he had what he wanted and he had, he had a great death, meaning at a certain point, his heart started to give out and he was in the hospital and we had the time to come. We all got to speak to him. I was terrified because of the, of the disease that he had, of the illness that he had. I was terrified that the end meant him locked in his body, unable to communicate and that we wouldn't know what he wanted. That was a nightmare for me. Um, and that is not how it happened. Um, instead, you know, when he went into the hospital and we came out and visited him, the cardiologist said he can keep living, but not outside of the hospital. In other words, the machines are now keeping his heart going. Right. And he was fully conscious and he knew that. And he said, I'm done. Wow. And for, for him to be able to make that choice. Yes. Is just incredible. Yes. Um, so I felt really lucky that we had that. It was really awful to have, you know, the first 22 years, but we got such a beautiful end mm. where we got to say goodbye and he was able to still communicate and we were able to understand him. And of course, we asked over and over again, we want to make sure we understand what you're saying. We want to make sure you understand what you're saying. We want to make sure everybody knows what everybody is thinking. He was very clear. Nobody in my family, because my family isn't like that. Nobody in my family like stood up and said no. Mm, you respected. Everybody what respected he what he wanted. For. Everybody knew he was in his right mind. You know, there wasn't any problem. So uh, he died and I was a wreck. <laughs> I was a I was a wreck. I just would cry for hours and hours and hours at a time. And I felt like everywhere I walked, I felt like I should wear like a band on my arm or something on my forehead that said like my dad just died yeah. because I felt like I am not normal. I'm on a different plane. Yeah. I, nothing feels right. Nothing feels normal. Everything. I am a wash in this morning because of my program. I just went, I just dove right into it. Mm. I just went there. I had a friend who she kind of saw what a wreck I was. And she said, Maybe you should consider antidepressants. And I was like, heck no. Mm. I'm not cursing on your podcast. Oh, um, you're, you're <laughs> more than fucking welcome okay. to fucking curse on this fucking podcast. Okay. I said, hell no. Um, uh, because I, this is, I felt like I'd earned this. I felt like this was the place I was supposed mm. to be emotionally. Mm. Was this broken? Mm. And I was mourning for my dad, but I was also mourning for the life that, he had and the life that we had because mm, you didn't have your dad for those 22 years we didn't just not, i didn't just not have my dad i didn't have a my i didn't have a family the right. same way because your mom was busy my taking my, care of him my and, mom was busy taking care of him and she had her own she had her own anxiety and uh she had her own problems based on the fact that her husband was dying and that she was trying to handle that. I mean, everybody, you know, when something happens, everybody has their own journey through yeah. it. So everybody's got their own journey. And so she's got her own thing going on. Again, like we would come back together as a family in the summers. But even then, like, you know, I wanted to be around my dad. I didn't want to be around the nurses. And mm. I didn't want to be around the medical equipment. And I didn't want to be around knowing how hard it was for him. I think that was really hard was knowing how hard it was for him. Watching somebody suffer sucks. Mm. It totally sucks. Yeah. You know, it would be so nice to just be like, they've got it all under control. I don't have to feel bad for them. Yeah. And I don't know how to do, I didn't know how to do that. Right. Well, especially when you were just a kid. Yeah. 
so uh, what was my, oh yeah, I was talking about programs. So I, I dove really, really deep into that. And I remember this phone call that I had with my sister. Um, and uh, she said, how are you doing? And I answered her honestly. Mm. I said, I'm doing really terribly. Wow. And she started to um, berate me. And what was that experience like for you? Well, this is what this is when I was really in program strongly. Um, it was kind of mind-blowingly wonderful because I stopped and I listened. And instead of jumping to make her feel better, which is my normal thing, try to be the person she wants to try to have the emotion she wants me to have, try to say the thing she wants me to say, try to put myself down to agree with her so that we're on the same side. I just didn't say a word. I didn't know what to say, and that's okay. I just was silent. You just let there be silence. I just let there be silence. And then she said, "It got. I guess it got awkward for her. For me, I was trying to. I just didn't know what to say, and the moments were passing. And she said, "I should go." And I said, "Okay." So we got off the phone, and I was really struck by what she said, and I was still figuring it out. But I at least had the wherewithal to know that I needed to figure it out. And I didn't know what the response should be. And I didn't jump to fix it. And she called me back like a few moments later. And she said, I'm sitting here with my husband. And I just turned to him and I told him about our conversation just now. And what I, and, and I said what, and what I, and about how I said what I said. And he said, why did you say that? And she said, because I didn't know what else to say. I didn't know what to say because Nancy was upset. So I just wanted her to stop being upset. Wow. And he said to her, you could have just said, I'm so sorry. And she's, I mean, it kind of brings tears to my eyes. She, she said, so I'm so sorry. Ugh. And it's only because I had program. Yeah. That that's what I mean by it's, we can't change what other people's reactions are. We can only change we can only change what our own reactions are, but sometimes that affects other people. Yeah. Sometimes when we don't respond in the classic way or we don't respond the way we normally do, even if we don't know what to say, if we instead don't try to save other people all the time, they get to have the room to figure out what they feel. Right. Wow. So that's what was going on for me um, when I met my husband. I remember that one morning he was, he had slept over. We were dating at the time. He had slept over and he was leaving um, the house. And I forget what had happened, but I was mad at him. Unfortunately, old habits are really hard to break. <laughs> I liked this guy, I wanted to keep the relationship going. So I didn't want to be mad at him. And I was too scared to be mad at him. Mm. And I don't know what I was doing, but I was pr- obviously pretending I wasn't mad at him. I don't, I don't think I realized I was mad at him even. Mm. He said, what's going on? And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, it seems like you're mad at me, but you don't want to be mad at me. So you're trying not to be mad at me. And he had put his finger on what I was feeling before I had figured wow. it out. That really blew me away. That really blew me away. And just jumping forward. So he he had been divorced. Or when we got together, he was separated. And he was still going through his divorce. He has two daughters at the time. By the time I met them, which was over a year later, they were four and seven. And I know it's crazy now. They're You're nineteen, teenagers. One's in college, sixteen. Yeah, I know oh it's insane. God. But you know, I'd done all this work of like saying I, sh- I need to be honest. I have to turn it over. Like you know, if it's if it's not mine to fix, I can't fix it. You know, or this is who I am. And if people, if a person doesn't like me, then that's okay. There's other people who will like me. Yeah. You know. Um, but when it came to his kids, it was too important. Mm. Like I started to pull back that I just, I think I also, uh, I identified too much 
um, I felt like I, we didn't have the same background, of course. Like mm -hmm. I was dealing with a dad who was dying when I was 12. They were much, much younger. Nobody's dying, you know? Mm -hmm. But I felt so bad that mm -hmm. they had to go through something mm -hmm. that was disruptive to their lives, mm -hmm. you know? And I did this thing, which obviously, you know, we've been talking about, I did later with my son. I felt bad that they would have me <laughs> as, you know, one of the, I don't want to say parent because their parents are the main parents, um, as a step parent in their lives. Like I just, I really took steps backwards. Like it was mm. really, it's almost like I can work my program. And then there are these places where it's so much harder for me. You know, if the kids did something that would upset me, I couldn't say anything. Mm. I had to walk away and just, instead of saying, Hey guys, it's a mess in here, clean it up. I just, I would just keep it to myself. Mm. And, you know, these are not big things. It's not that big of a deal. And that's what I said to myself also. Not, not big things, not that big of a deal. Like, right. I would wait till my husband came home and he got to be the bad guy. And But I feel a little bad about that. Mm. And In terms I, of what? Why do you feel bad? Because you know what? They are smart, capable people. Mm. And I love them. But I imagine that we would have had a more authentic relationship mm. if I don't want them to feel like they have to take care of me. Mm. And if I always have to be okay for them, I worry that that means that they feel that they always need to make sure I'm okay. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Well, but now that they're teenagers, I mean, do you feel like, what's the dynamic of that relationship now with your stepdaughters? Did it change over the years? Did you get more comfortable? Yeah. I mean, I did get more comfortable. And I would imagine after you had your son, it was kind of like, uh, hey guys, I have a baby. So we're just going to get really No, real. I felt bad. I felt guilty for bringing Even another yeah, baby into the house. I know that, you know, my older stepdaughter was so excited. Mm. You know, she was so, she was talking to us about having a baby. She was talking to us about getting married before we were talking to her about getting married. We, mm. we never would have moved in together without knowing that we wanted to get married. Right. Because of kids, I mean. Of Not, course. Yeah. Right. We kind of wanted to make sure it was the right time to bring it up and that everything was copacetic and that, sure. you know, but the older one kept saying, well, why won't you guys get married? <laughs> Aww, that's sweet. Um, and then we had lent somebody a pack and play from when the girls were little. Sure. And, um, and the older one was like, but they're bringing it back, right? Because we might need it. Because what if you guys have a baby? Um, the younger one was like, don't have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> right. So they had no problem being honest with you. Oh, they were wonderfully honest. Yeah. Yeah. They were awesomely yeah. honest, yeah. like so awesomely honest. Yeah. The little one. And I, you know what? I shouldn't even say that because what do I know? For all I know, they weren't. I mean, later on when you're, when you're that little, I don't know how on, how dishonest you can be. True. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you're all id the yes, younger that you true. are. I can't speak for later about, they would have to speak to that. But, sure. um, the younger one was like, I'm enough <laughs> yeah. and you don't need more. Yeah. Just me. I'm the baby. I'm the baby. I will remain the baby. I will remain the baby. And you will not put me in a corner. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, when I had Benjamin, I just felt like, oh, this is going to split my attention mm. and they won't have my mm. undivided attention anymore. Mm. I know in theory that you should never give a kid under undivided attention. Mm. And I know that for my son, I practice that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I don't feel bad about mm -hmm. when he's play with me, play with me, play with mm -hmm. me. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, get to that, <laughs> get to that place where you're bored enough that you're going to suddenly create something, create something yeah. magical, yeah. you know, where, you know, well, then let me have iPad. No, you know, because get to that place where it's like, okay, I just figured out how to make a tower out of scrap paper yeah. and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Or created a new game with a basketball, yeah. you know? So since you mentioned creativity, yeah. I want to jump to something because we're we're kind of nearing our question round. Oh, my goodness. Um, I know. It I went so fast. so much. It went so fast. Oh, my God. We covered so much ground. It was I know. So, so juicy. I want to talk for, for a bit because um, you are having a really exciting 
creative time right now with your writing. I am. And um, I know that you've been a writer. You were a writer long before you had your child. You were a writer before you met your husband. You wrote some stuff and sold some stuff. And, and But now I just kind of want to jump in because your son is almost nine. You do have that more time to, to focus, like you yeah. said. You have this really exciting stuff happening. So what is it like balancing that with a nine-year-old and a husband and a stepdaughter who still lives at home? One's in college, one's at home. Um, it's great and awful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's great because I feel like, for me, I don't feel like I could go back and be the person that I was. That person doesn't exist anymore. There's this whole other part of me that I get to be now. I get to still be the writer. I get to go back to doing that. And it feels like, this is so weird to say, and I don't, I, I wonder if I even mean it this way. I get to be something more than a mom. Mm. And no, I think that's wonderful to say because <laughs> I think that that is honestly, Nancy, and I'm so glad that you said that because that is the reason that I started this podcast. Yeah. Because I think it's, it's so all consuming and everything that you described after you gave birth to Benjamin and experienced the anxiety that you experienced and everything else in between is that it doesn't feel or didn't feel to me like I was anything but just a, a milk factory yeah, and a servant. Yeah. And then I felt guilty for feeling that way. Yes. And so, you know, and it wasn't until my son was in preschool and then really until he was in elementary school that yeah. I just kind of could breathe and go, wait, who am I? Yeah. You know, so I, I love that you said that. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. It's well, it's like one of those things where I'm like, I don't want to discount if somebody if somebody is a mom. And the, here's the thing. If somebody's a mom and then they don't officially have a title to something else. Right. Then that doesn't mean they're not doing other things. Right. You know what I mean? Of course. But it does it does feel nice to have something to sink your teeth into that doesn't have yeah. the word mom behind it. That's just yours. Yeah. Whether it's a, a vocation or an avocation or it doesn't even matter what it is, but something that you have ownership of. Yeah. That doesn't have to do with raising your child or being a mother. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, as a mom, you are facilitating somebody else growing. But as a creative person, that then you get to grow. Yes. And if you if if I couldn't jump back into that creativity, then I don't get to grow. And it's it's basically somebody else I, I, sucking the life out of me. Um <laughs> <laughs> no, it's then I stagnate. Yeah. I mean, and I'll say this also, which is really kind of awesome. Like my son gets excited that I'm doing other things when he hears about some of the stuff that's happening. But my stepkids are so supportive. Mm. And it's this wonderful cheering section that I never expected. Like that's not something that I had ever like yeah. planned on the or bonus. anything like that. It's this yeah. little bonus like having this little corner of of your family um rooting for you. Yeah. That's so great. And just wanting good things to happen for yeah. you. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Which is really nice. So can you, I know there's probably stuff you can't talk about, but yeah. can you talk about like maybe one thing that's exciting that might be happening in the next 12 months? So the way I kind of came back into writing was that um, I started trying to write on my own. And that was very scary for me because it's not like you get hired for a job and you have the job and nobody can deny that you have the job. Right. You're in a room writing what comes of it. Right. And what if nothing comes of it? Right. And then can you call yourself a writer? If it's like if a it, in this instance, if a tree falls in a forest and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? No, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> so I was trying to write, but it, the pressure was really strong because unless it was excellent and something could happen with it, I wasn't writing. Mm. I was piddling around, wasting my time. So I started trying to write. I was kind of scared about it. And then another, fr a friend of mine who is a writer, she's a novelist. Her name is Celine Busby. Now I'll say she's also a screenwriter. She had been, her work had been getting options for a movie and a TV show and that sort of thing. And she said to her husband, who's also in the business, she said, 
other people are making money off of my work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As like they're getting hired to write the screenplays for it. I'm not. And they're making, they might be making more money than me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> she said, you know, like I want in on this. Yeah. And her husband said, you know, it's a very different business than the book, book world. Maybe consider doing it with somebody else. And what about Nancy? And she came to me and she said, she kind of like, she's like, do you want to go for a hike? And it felt very purposeful. You know, yeah. there was something yeah. she wanted to ask me. And she said, so, and she kind of gave me the spiel and she said, would you be interested in writing with me? And I said, yes. And she goes, well, no, no, no. Don't you want to think about it? And I'm like, no, I don't want to think about it. It was easier for me to have faith in her than in myself. It of was, of course, yeah. yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it was easier. Um, it was easier for me to have faith in us as a team. Mm. And also, I kind of felt like, like if a friend said to me what I just said to you about, you know, like writing by yourself, if it doesn't amount to anything, it didn't count. If a friend said that to me, I'd be like, that's bullshit. Yeah, you know. I almost said it earlier, but I thought, no, just let her we'll come back around to it. But yeah. It's bullshit. It's yeah. complete bullshit. Right. Um, and the whole bit about, can you call yourself a writer? Like, yeah. I mean, my philosophy is if you write anything. You're a writer. You're a writer. Yeah. But I hold myself to a different standard. Right. Than, than I hold other people. Of course people. you do. Right. So, um, and it felt less scary to do this mm. with somebody else. Mm-hmm. So we started writing together. We tried out our hand on one thing and it didn't work. And then we started in on something else. And we wrote this script called Rebecca and Quinn Get Scared, which is a comedy horror, which is, um, it's kind of like Romy and Michelle in a haunted house. It's two best friends who just cannot get their shit together living in New York City. Their lives are a mess and they just turned 30 and everybody else seems to have their shit together. And one of them um, inherits a house in bumfuck Maine, and they decide, let's just give it all up and move up to Maine and open a bed and breakfast. But they get there, and it's haunted. It's more comedy than horror. And we wrote it, and we then we had to try to get people to read it, which was harder than you'd expect. Mm, sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we ended up sending it to festivals, and we you know, semi-finaled and quarter-finaled. And then we were finalists at the Austin Film Festival in the comedy category. Amazing. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. And then um, from that, people were a little bit more interested in reading it. Mm -hmm. And then now we have uh, Trish C., who directed Pitch Perfect 3, Attached to Direct. And I'm not sure whether or not I'm allowed to say who our producer now is. So I will leave it out for now. But he is um, a very impressive producer. That's so great. Um, yeah, that seems to be heading towards getting set up. It's it's really it's racing in that direction. Mm. Um, we're now represented at UTA, whereas before UTA wouldn't return our phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> and what's great is you know work begets work. So you know I had a script that's actually semi autobiographical um, called Blink, which is. Um, you know, the story of a 14-year-old girl, the youngest of three, who just wants to be treated like a grown-up. She wants her independence. And then her dad got gets sick and her parents start to leave and travel the world and search for a cure, which is what my parents did. And I did not like this character. I did not know at the time that there is no cure mm. for Lou Gehrig's disease. I didn't know that. Mm. And she gets exactly what she wanted, which is her independence. And it's nothing like she expected. Mm. And having responsibility is nothing like you expect and becoming a woman is not really anything like you expect, which I think is true. I could say is true my entire life. Like having a baby is nothing like I expected. Getting married is nothing like I expected. You know, it's everything is different. Like, and no matter how honestly people speak about it, nothing can cover the gamut. No. And everyone's story is so unique. Everyone's experience is so unique. Exactly. So uh, I had written that a while ago, and and when Celine and I were first together um, to write, um, she said, "You know, there's oh, you, this- you mean you weren't lesbian?" Yeah, lovers? exactly. Oh, just to clarify, just, <laughs> just to, to clarify, clarify. That. perfectly that fine if you were, and you can legally marry her. <laughs> I mean, true. well, actually, you Except can't because you're, you're married. I'm already married. Right. She said, "You know, there's this thing called the Meryl Streep Writers Lab, and um, I want to 
send my script in, but I, I want to send a script in, but I don't have one yet because we had just started writing together. Um, so why don't you send something in? So I sent Blink in and I got into the lab and, uh, and that was really incredible and wonderful. And now I'm talking to directors based on that, um, for Blink through the lab, talking to, um, financing companies and that sort of thing. And, you know, even in these conversations that you have with people in passing, when you say, well, this other thing is happening there. Celine and I wrote this little Hallmark movie <laughs> when we were, after we wrote um, Rebecca and Quinn get scared and nobody was returning our phone calls. Um, we were like, ah, oh, God, we want to keep writing, mm. but we're not quite ready to dive in with our whole selves yet. Cause it kind of hurts that nobody will respond to us. Mm. And so we were like, let's just take something really simple and fun. And let's just take like a TV movie, like a like a holiday movie idea. And we had a blast writing it. It was so much fun. You know, agents don't really want to hear from that. Mm. <laughs> um, they wanted nothing to do with it. Um, but then I just spoke to somebody recently who heard about this other thing and said, I'm looking for a Hallmark movie. And so mm. it's like, you know, one thing begets the next thing, which sure. begets the ne- next yeah. thing and and that sort of thing. So it's it's really nice. And here's the best part. Doing it with someone else makes it so much easier. Mm. When when I when when I get a rejection, it's we getting a rejection. Right. You can share. We can share that. Yeah. And and when because it's we getting a rejection, I don't feel like it feels less personal. Yes. Because I could see my friend get the exact same rejection as me and think to myself, it doesn't affect how I think about her. And it doesn't right. make it doesn't lower my view of her. Right. Of course. And so therefore it shouldn't lower my view of of myself. That's, it's a really nice reason. Yeah. Congratulations on everything. I'm so excited. I can't wait to see these in the theater. Yeah. I I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. Um, All right. So before we wrap up, I do have your questions. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. What is something you've changed your mind about recently? So my husband is an editor for TV and film. And he works a lot and he works often and he works long hours. I didn't mean a lot and often. I meant long hours. And he is between jobs right now for like, I don't know, three months or four months. And I said to him before this last job was ending, I said, I have this fantasy that you get to be the house husband and I get to actually work more full time, Mm. closer to full time. Mm. And then his job ended and other things came up, but he didn't take them. And his next job isn't going to be till uh, end of August. And he said, I've got it. Like, oh, that's it. I'll be the house husband. And on the one hand, it's incredible and it's great. But now that I have the opportunity to get a little space from what I had to do, like all mm-hmm. of my responsibilities of being the mom. Mm-hmm. I realize that I miss some of those. Like I actually want to be doing some of those things. Like what are some of the things that you miss? Okay. So Benjamin had, we just are trying out a guitar teacher for him. He's taking up guitar. We think Peter was around and I could have gone and gotten work done. There were actually things we needed to, I needed to do. I couldn't leave. <laughs> mm, right. Cause you wanted to be there and hear I the guitar lesson. Hear, I wanted to know sure. what is this about? What's going on? I want to be, you know, when it's always there, there's this like fantasy about being able to step away. Mm. But when I could step away, I realized I don't actually need to step away as much as I thought mm. I would want to, mm-hmm. but it's having that option is really nice. Yes. Yes. Like when it's not an option, it feels more like, well, I can't. Like you're chained to it. You're chained to yeah. it. And I like, I would say things like, well, my day is shot because, you know, he's got no school today. So, you know, the, the play date is going to be here or this and then the other. And then I find myself being like, well, what's going on with the play date? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Ah. <laughs> Grass is always greener. Grass is always greener. Oh my God. Um, okay. Second question is how do you define success? 
Um, I wish that I could say that I define success as this <laughs> wonderful feeling, um, but I don't. Okay. So <laughs> um, for me, and I think for other people too, first of all, one point of success is something is actually completed. Mm. So the script is actually written. You're not sitting there going, you know, one day I'll sit down and I'll whatever. For instance, the podcast actually happens. You Mm. actually sit in front of someone and you do it. You don't just think about it. Right. You know, right. Having a completed project is one success. Unfortunately, I still see success as somebody else, as it actually coming to fruition and somebody else seeing it and somebody else, like in other words, for me, I, you know, we're finalists at Austin. Celine and I were just named among 25 screenwriters to watch or 20 screenwriters. I forget what the number was for 2018 in Movie Maker Magazine. Wow. And that's um, really cool. It's really cool. Having this outside recognition feels good. Yeah. And, you know, I want to see Rebecca and Quinn get scared in the theater. Yeah. That's my fantasy. Yeah. Maybe it'll end up on a streaming service instead. Maybe it will not even make it there. And I hate to even, I don't even want to say that because it feels really close. Mm-hmm. You know, having it come out, like, first of all, and then having people go see it, you know, sure. it's like, I'm not a book writer, but it's like having the book in available for people to pick up sure. and look at and sure. read and then say to you, I consumed what you made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched your movie yeah. or I read your book yeah. or, or I get paid for it. Like How about and and <laughs> and, and yeah. I get paid for it. Yeah. Like right now we've got all these wonderful things happening but we we haven't been paid for this particular part yet. Mm. And so even that and and I'm I, I again this is like an external thing but I see it as recognition. Yeah. Third question is what do you think of when you hear the word milf? Uh mother I'd like to fuck. <laughs> And how do you feel about that acronym? I that's interesting. That's a really interesting question. I think of it as somebody who's become a mother, but they are still viable in all kinds of ways. It's it's you know, you say fucking, but really it's about, you know, I still I'll still see them as something else, you mm. know, or I still want to engage with them mm. because there's there's so much else going on besides that. It's mm. it's I see that they're a mother, but there's so much else going on. And you include the mother part. Like that's what's important to me. I, I hate to say this, but like Celine and I go on these meetings, you bring up motherhood and it's like the air is sucked right out of the room. It <laughs> fucking sucks. <laughs> what Oh, give me an example. Oh my god. We make a, you know, like we... And and I have to just ask, is this in meetings with men? Yes. Okay. So if you brought up motherhood in a meeting with a woman executive who may or may not be a mother, because not every woman is a mom, but... I, I, we have, uh, there's one producer that we met with who's a mom and... I don't remember whether it came up or not. It might have come up. And with her, it was kind of okay. There's another woman. Kind of okay. Well, we didn't go down that road very well, far. And your, your stories aren't about motherhood per se. No. Like Rebecca and Quinn's not about motherhood. No, but we joke around a lot mm-hmm. in meetings. And if we joke around about our husbands, people are laughing. They think it's yeah. funny. We joke around about the business. People think it's funny. Uh, we joke around about who the fuck knows. But if we joke around about being mothers, it's like forced laughter from the other side. Interesting. Yeah. It's almost like telling someone we have another job and this job is not a priority. It's really weird. And I just hope it changes. Like, I only Mm. say that to say, like, I feel like there were other things that maybe used to be brought up that you weren't supposed to talk about. Mm that are probably you're allowed to talk about yeah, now. Yeah, much more on the table now. Yeah, things are much yeah. more on the table now. And and this is something that's still stigmatized. It's somewhat it is stigmatized. Yeah. Like it's almost like people don't know what to say to you if yeah. you talk about it. And I'm not maybe we need to meet with more people. 
maybe I'm reading into it, but I don't think so. Because we walk out and we talk about it. Yeah. Like Celine's like- When you're both having the same we're experience. We're both having the yeah. same experience. And even like sometimes we have a meeting with the director and you know she'll comment on it. She's a mom too. Mm. And we get to talk about being moms with each other. Mm. Like when it's the three of us. And that's really nice because she knows what it's like. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird how we have to be careful. There are two things we can't really talk about is our age and being a parent. Mm. Those are the things that people don't think are funny. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? Maybe if we were meeting on family films, it would be different. I doubt it. Maybe if we were men with kids, it would be different if we talked about our kids. Oh, I mean, well, I, I, I don't strongly know believe that way because I'm not a yeah. man, but I would imagine I would bet money yeah. that it is. All right. We're going to go into our lightning round. Uh, it's very brief. Okay. Gel polish or regular polish? Oh, gel uh, when I have a good excuse for it because it's the best way to go, but regular so my nails don't die. Texting or talking? God, I love texting. <laughs> uh, Whole Foods or Trader Joe's? I want Whole Foods, but I go to Trader Joe's. <laughs> Cat person or dog person? Cat. Goldie Hawn or Kristen Wiig? Love them both. Can't I just do a three-way? There you go. (laughs) On a scale of one to 10, how good are you at ping pong? Four. Okay. Um, If you could push a button and have perfect skin for the rest of your life, but it would also give you incurable halitosis for the rest of your life, would you push it? No. Would you rather have a vagina that speaks or have the ability to fart songs? A vagina that speaks. What was the name of your first pet? Candy. What was the name? Okay. So what was the name of your first pet? Candy. What was the name of the first street you grew up on? Okay. The first street I grew up on was East 28th Street. Okay. So I'll give you the second one. Okay. Because I think I know where you're going with this. Gerard. So I'm sorry. It was Candy. (laughs) It was Candy Gerard. (laughs) Candy Gerard with a G? G. G G-I-R-A-R-D. G-I-R-A. Yes. I mean, that is, you can't make that up. That's just so good. I'm going to just start calling you Candy. I'm going to be like, hey, CG, what's up, girl? Let's go to Equinox and take some yoga. Um, Nancy, Katz, thank you so much for coming on the show. Jennifer, Tracy, (laughs) thank you. Um, This was awesome. I love that you're doing this. Thank you. This is so great. You know, you've got, I've known you for a few years. Yep. And you've got such a wonderful perspective on stuff. And I love the fact that more people get to hear it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. Right. All right, MILF. (laughs) Signing off. Bye. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Head on over to MILFpodcast.com. Give us your email so we can keep you apprised of all things MILFy. And also, you can get show notes, transcripts of each show and tweetable quotes if something resonated with you and you want to tweet it. Thanks so much for listening.